Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? How are you feeling this week? Week seven? Week six? Week seven or six, yeah. This week was really hard. I mean, right after we recorded last week, I wanted to make sure that some of our stats were going to be up to date because we were going through, you know, folks will remember we went through different care homes and how many people had died within them. And as I was doing that, I, I asked online if anyone had uh, seen this kinds of kind of list created yet, and no one had. And so since then, I've I created this database. And so every night, I've been going through the number of dead uh, from the coronavirus, and it's really high. <laughs> like it's really, yeah, yeah. I mean, we already know it's high. We know that the numbers, like you know, at this point, we're recording on Sunday, we're well past fifteen hundred. But part of what I'm kind of realizing as I'm doing this is that you really get a like a reminder that every one of these people is a person. They had a community, they have family, they lived somewhere. And so, I mean, my list is above 800 already. There's about, there's more than 50 long-term care facilities listed, but also retirement residences, residences for adults living with disabilities, and also the Mission Jail in British Columbia where an inmate has died. And so that's, that's really, you know, it's hard. And that's, I think everyone's living with the weight of that right now. Yeah, and in addition to those 800 people, um, you know, I think there's uh, people probably know this already, but I don't. I think that it bears repeating that these people are dying alone, and their families uh, are likely not going to be able to have uh, funeral services or memorial services for quite some time, and that's really, really hard. And I, you know, I really commend you, Nora, for taking that work on. Uh, it shouldn't have to be up to you. This should be paid work. <laughs> you shouldn't be volunteering to do this type of data collection, I don't think. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that someone is doing it. And when I saw that you tweeted that that was something that you were doing, uh, one of the things that I immediately thought was, oh, my God, like, you know, Nora should not have to be doing this um, by herself um, or shouldn't have to have to do this at all uh, for those of us who need this information or should have it, which is everybody. And I thought, what a wonderful exercise it would be if, you know, if students were working on that, if that was something that um, the academy would uh, mobilize students to do. And that's kind of where we're going to take the show today. We're going to talk about what the academy is doing uh, amidst all this. Um, but as Nora already mentioned, we are recording this on Sunday, the 19th, before we get into the topic of discussion for today, acknowledge the horrific events uh, that occurred in Nova Scotia um, starting late last night and into this morning. Yeah, so the news is only just coming out now. So by the time you're hearing this, I'm sure that the news has been updated. But uh, from what we understand, um, a guy, 54-year-old white guy, went uh, around killing people in the community of Portapique, um, which is just outside of Halifax. And the death toll is really high. It's uh, 13 people. Uh, the gunman was killed by the RCMP. And it's it's the kind of thing that you don't want to have happen ever, obviously. Mm -hmm. But happening now, it just feels like even weirder, like even worse 
in a lot of ways. Um, and it's going to have some really big implications on how that community is able to heal and mourn. And, you know, you've already mentioned that we can't go to funerals right now. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm worried, I think, for how people are going to be able to heal collectively. I mean, talking about healing so soon might feel premature, but it's such an important part of, of a community dealing with such a massive, horrific shock to the community of, uh, as a whole. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to be from that community and knowing that you can't do what you would normally do uh, to memorialize uh, those who were killed. Um, that has to be very, very difficult. Uh, and our condolences uh, to folks who have lost people through that tragedy, through COVID. You know, this is just, it just feels like a really, really heavy day today. One of the things that was so important in Quebec City in the aftermath of the shooting at the mosque in St. Foy was the spontaneous coming together of community immediately following the shooting. So the shooting happened on a Sunday night and on a Monday night, directly following it, 15,000 people came into the streets of Saint-Foy to, to, you know, reject gun violence. And at that time, we had no idea why uh, someone had targeted a mosque. It was obviously clear that he had political motivations, but we wouldn't get the full sense of his um, racism, his Islamophobia for a couple of months after that. But at that point, it didn't matter. It, it was about showing a collective mourning, collective solidarity, solidarity with the victims, solidarity with the survivors, because of course there's 32 survivors of that of that incident, and um, and when you organize something to commemorate something like that year over year, it gets harder year over year, and so the first time that folks will be able to come together, the the memory will be fresh, but it won't be as fresh as as tonight or as tomorrow night or as the upcoming days. So. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And uh, for all of our listeners who are directly touched by this, uh, indirectly touched, of course, as well, but for anybody that's listening who, who knows any of the victims or who's from that community, uh, yeah, our hearts are, are with you for sure tonight. Okay, so today we're going to talk about education. Yeah. And what is going on in education uh, now that we are living the COVID life. I know that for those of you who listen to us week to week, will know that I have been frustrated <laughs> with my own experiences being a student right now uh, and what is happening. But beyond just, you know, talking about all the difficulties with the way that the academy has decided to treat its students uh, right now, we also kind of want to talk a little bit about what the Academy could be doing right now. And uh, at a time when uh, the world is uh, united in an experience that uh, life is no longer normal virtually anywhere um, as a result of uh, trying to stave off the transmission of this disease. And uh, the Academy has responded by doing everything they can to be the ivory tower <laughs> uh, that some uh, universities and colleges would like to pretend that they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a good enough intro? I don't know. 
That was pretty good. I and this this conversation can be super fun because like me personally, like I don't care about university anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> university is relegated to the the realm of nightmares for me. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Um, and of course you're living through this directly. But I think that it really does matter because universities and colleges, I mean, they're they're really important for a lot of communities within this country economically. They provide a lot of jobs. There are a lot of people who um, rely on the university, whether they rely on it uh, to make their living or they rely on it through the spinoff effects of the economy of the university, like there or college, like they're they're major economic drivers. And the shutdown has raised a lot of questions. I mean, not the least of which, like, what happens to my tuition? What happens in the fall? What happens with standardized testing? Oh, what what do you mean that you can now pay um, nothing and have Harvard-level courses for free, which has been my favorite <laughs> development yeah. of this entire crisis? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like overnight, like everything else in society, we've just realized that maybe higher education is more bullshit than it likes to think it is. Ooh, <laughs> hot take. Actually, it's kind of a lukewarm take. Didn't we already know? We may have already yeah. known. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so where should we start? Um, first of all, uh, most of you will know that a lot of colleges, universities, and even primary and secondary schools are continuing as though nothing has changed in with the one large exception that all of our classes, certainly for me and for many students, uh, are on some sort sort of social media platform. Most schools, it seems, are using Zoom. That, uh, in my experience, just so that folks know how it worked for me and for other people who go to school elsewhere, um, we had, I think, definitely less than 24 hours notice And when I say we, I'm talking about both students and professors, that we were all moving to online distance learning. Um, I think we've probably talked before about how uh, different distance learning is than learning uh, in a classroom and how it's not the same experience. But beyond that, to expect teachers from all different grade levels to all different years of universities and different uh, university and college and different um, programs of study to be able to shift their teaching, their planned lesson plans um, overnight virtually or even a week. Like I don't think that that's enough either to shift everything to an online mode of delivery, I think makes it pretty clear that good pedagogy is not the goal <laughs> at colleges and universities <laughs> or schools <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> I just, I find it very perplexing that that was the thing that most places decided to do. What do you mean by that? Like, what what in your mind is has been exposed by such a rapid, like, let's go online shift? Because I think in a lot of people's minds, um, teaching online, there's not much difference between uh, someone giving a lecture from the front of the, of the room in a room and someone giving a lecture on on camera, especially when your class is 500 students, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I think is exposed is how much money drives everything at colleges and universities. I think that uh, one of the reasons why uh, uh, 
many places in post-secondary education so quickly moved to Zoom and didn't change anything else about their academic calendars (laughs) is because they want to make sure that they still get tuition in for the summer. They want to make sure that they still get tuition in for the fall. And in order to um, make sure that all of those courses that they've planned um, remain in effect and that they get the expected revenue uh, that they want to get, uh, they need to finish Uh, this semester on time. That means, you know, there's no break uh, to to make sure uh, that professors can realign. There's no break to make sure that students can realign. But beyond that also, I mean, you've spoken, you just asked about how it's different. Like it could be, it could be similar to just watching a lecture at the front of the room. There's a few things that are different. One of which is the experience of the student and where the student is. If the student is working from home and has never planned to work from home and is, I don't know, a parent or lives with six other people who are very noisy or whatever it is, perhaps their home is not an environment that is conducive to learning and that's not something that they've planned for. That makes things different. It means that less people are speaking in the class or engaged and you can't engage with people Um, over Zoom in the same way that you can engage with people in a classroom setting. We don't only communicate with our voices uh, when we're learning. We also communicate uh, with our facial expressions and the way that we gesticulate. And that is all very important for learning. And it's the same with the professor. And a lot of that, those uh, modes of communication are taken away from us uh, when we go to classes online. But quite frankly, you know, uh, we've had during this time students who, in certainly in my uh, cohort of students in my classes, who moved back to Hong Kong or moved back to New York or moved back to Mexico during a time when they were expected to be in class the next day. <laughs> but, but you know, all, <laughs> world leaders absurd. everywhere are like, get back to your home country. <laughs> it's like it's it is absolutely absurd. And so before, instead of taking, stopping and taking stock of that and seeing what would be the best thing for the mental health of our students, for the, for the learning of our students, for the ability of our teachers to teach, um, for pedagogy and for, well, maybe considering that none of that is important right now, (laughs) you know, and perhaps there is just needs to be a whole other way forward. Part of what I found so interesting about how society shut down was really that there was that rapid shutdown and it was a bit relieving because there wasn't much gray area between we can do X, but we can't do Y. It was kind of like this like cascading set of rules that happened more or less overnight where we went from normal life to like absolutely not normal life. And I say that I found that relieving because everything then turned toward our collective survival. There was a focus placed on trying to make sure that hospitals would have enough space. There's a focus placed on maybe asking people to come back to the medical profession if they've left. Certainly that was a big part of the early days and still in Quebec, trying to find people to fill some of these positions. And it meant that like everything that you personally were working on, unless your work was tied to an essential service, you could kind of let it just drop because everyone was in the exact same boat. And so it was very bizarre to see that the education field was not in the same boat, that it was very much like, okay, ordinance from on high, you will continue your work as normal in the higher education. 
primary secondary education, uh, it took a lot longer for the government, certain governments to give some sort of directions to teachers for how they're supposed to do their their classes. Uh, in Quebec, we're really lucky. Um, mm-hmm. The government actually has not mandated class in the same way that it's been mandated in other provinces. I'm thinking of Ontario. And so, I mean, my kid's teacher sends us like some links every week and is like, this is the ministry mandated links. You can take a look to see if there's anything interesting. Um, But don't stress yourself out over it. Take care of your family. Take care of your health. So that's been really great. Um, And I mean, she also does do an hour a week uh, for two different sets of kids, depending on whatever works for you. Um, so that's kind of a nightmare to watch an hour of Zoom uh, with kindergartners. <laughs> yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like if she has the freedom and the flexibility to try and figure out a different way that'll work, I imagine it's going to evolve the next couple of weeks to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with children that are so young, it's going to obviously look different than kids who are in high school or then in a college or university class. But it's it's funny because like there's such um, a resistance from some quarters against letting things just just end and let's pick it back up where we can pick it up in the future and as you know you identified that this is all driven by money and it's so true of course it's driven by money because if they were to lose those tuition fees what are they going to do they've got to pay all this staff they can't just lay off all this staff and it, and it, it just reminds me of I mean you know you and I have been fighting against the privatization of higher education in this country for fucking way too long 15 years mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and and it's now that you really do see the difference between how primary secondary education was responding to this and higher education. And of course, the, the big difference between those two systems is how they're funded, is the fact that primary secondary education is 100% publicly funded and higher education is like hovering around the fuck. I don't even want to think about it now. A third publicly funded and the rest is all private money. And so when it's that, that's the situation, then of course, the quality, we were always saying tuition fees and quality, there's a, there's a, 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 a relationship there that when you reduce, uh, when you raise tuition fees, when you reduce public funding, you're going to reduce the quality. And we're seeing that instantly. And there were some professors resisting that. I mean, in the university sector, it's a little easier to resist it because you do have the ability to kind of like design your course. And so if a professor were to say, you know what, we're ending it here, I'm going to give you all the grades that you had or whatever, that's up to them. But that doesn't exist across the board. A lot of professors don't have academic freedom. They're not tenured. And of course, in the entire college system in most parts of this country, there's none of the same or similar kinds of protections. And so it has been very interesting to see uh, another system. I mean, it's not life and death like the health system, but it is another system that the underfunding chugged along long enough until you get to a crisis that just exposes this whole thing. And then then it really turns into a a total joke rather than sitting back and saying, "Okay, we have this massive group of people. They all need to do something. They could be learning. Why don't we, as you say, why don't we put them onto different data collection projects? Why don't we actually have them calling elderly people in this country and checking in with people, mm-hmm. forming relationships like that, mm-hmm. f- getting involved in their own communities, finding ways to pick up uh, volunteer shifts or work shifts to do Meals on Wheels or to help people get to appointments when they can't, you know, rely on their normal supports because we're all socially distancing. I mean, there are so many things that you could have done with college and university students um, and not the least of which would have been to ask them what they what they think that they should do to help out with this mm-hmm. with this crisis. And instead, it was like, "Sorry, you're kicked out of res. 
and your classes start next week online, I hope you've got an internet connection and a quiet space to watch your computer in your home, your parents' home bedroom, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, beyond just like having an optional, uh, you know, group of people who would be possibly able to contribute work in the way that you said, like, I, I also think like it's, you know, it's the it's fucking scholarship. It's like so much of what people are doing in a college or university from day to day is figuring out how to. Um, either move society forward in some way with something or getting trained on how society currently functions in some way on something. And so like literally you could pick any program of study (laughs) and figure out a way, any any single one and figure out a way where those students could be mobilized to help towards relief efforts or to help towards like tracking and statistics, um, uh, efforts like this is, you know, universities are like the research places. <laughs> like if we needed to be collecting data on something <laughs> like, you know, deaths in nursing homes, you would think that there would be students at the ready able to do that and that universities and colleges would be ready to mobilize students in that way. And I'm really serious when I say, you know, pick pick a a, a program of study. Like if I'm when I'm watching the news and I see that like fucking um, uh, Cristiano, I can't remember the, the last name of the designer, like a fashion house in New York, is now making masks. Like, I'm like, literally any student can do anything, you know, <laughs> to contribute um, to what's happening. Yeah. Like, you know, if you pick, just, you know, pick a program of study, Nora. Uh, accounting. If you pick accounting, you can have students, like, taking a look at what the implications are of how quickly the uh, the emergency benefit changes that are happening from week to week to week is going to affect accounting for individuals and for businesses in the future <laughs> or what the best what the best way is that people can do their accounting in order to make sure that not everything is a clusterfuck because everything changes from week to week. Pick yeah. another one. Um, social work. <laughs> I mean, that was, I don't know why that just popped in my head. That was probably the easiest one, but, <laughs> but okay. But, but like social work, clearly, like there's going to be a number of mental health effects to, for the way that people's lives have shifted so quickly and people are going to need support. But And beyond that, uh, people who have particular needs might need um, assistance, social assistance in a way that we have not yet imagined. And we can have students at the forefront of the type of research that we need to figure out what type of supports we're going to need to implement as soon as possible that are not just economic and to figure out what types of supports we're going to need to have at the ready once the economy is ready to start up again. Like, ta-da. But could, you imagine <laughs> you know? we, could you imagine we linked, like, uh, post-secondary students with, like, primary and secondary students to have, like, chat, like, help? online in some way. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many interesting things. It's it's just such proof that the university and college system is not in the public interest anymore. Yeah, but and also just like so out of touch. How can you be so out of touch that something that is literally touching every single human in the world <laughs> has not changed the way that you approach things? You're just like, "Ah, okay, guys, stay the course." <laughs> I yeah. just I don't it just seems so weird to me. And I'm not suggesting that you know, there's a, a a necessity for every student to be productive in a certain way. Not at all. No. I think this type of thing should be opt in. But I do think that if we have a public institution 
whose purpose is to like further society, (laughs) then shouldn't they be a part of this? Like every other public institution seems to be. I mean, there are some instances of labs and particular programs of studies, certainly nursing and medicine, where students, particular students are being either um, fast-tracked through so they can uh, start uh, providing care under certain types of supervision earlier, um, or that labs can be used um, to for uh, vaccine purposes and so on. Sure. But that for it to stop there makes no sense to me. Oh, and even there, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of two labs in this country, very high level research laboratories that are also still closed down to the most part to most researchers who would even be doing adjacent work to finding a vaccine. I mean, the, 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 the orientation, as you say, is simply not there. I don't know if it's no longer there or if it was never there, but certainly the underfunding of the system so that they're all chasing dollars has been very clearly uh, a transformative force, has had a transformative force on how post-secondary education runs in this country. And we're seeing it laid bare. Yeah, I think um, one of the the most interesting stories or like one that made me chuckle to myself, I guess, (laughs) coming out of... uh, you know, the, 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 the privatization of these systems, which are really um, driving the way that, that these institutions are responding to COVID-19, are these stories that are coming out that these institutions are terrified of losing all of their international Ugh. students going into next year. I mean, shouldn't they just be like really hopeful that they're all healthy and okay wherever they are? <laughs> Like, shouldn't that be the message? (laughs) Right. I mean, you'd think you'd think that that would be the approach, but it's not. And why are they afraid of losing their international students? Because international students, uh, you know, as public funds have drifted away uh, from uh, uh, universities and colleges across Canada, international students are typically paying a different tuition fee much, much higher um, than domestic students, and they are a crucial part of funding the system. Well, that reliance on international students, um, while uh, is just unethical generally, but is also ridiculous uh, when you when it comes to like a crisis like this, you can see why anything can change in any country, at any time, uh, where international students would not be permitted to come back. And right now, because international students are perhaps stuck in the country where they're studying or stuck at home where they can't get to the country that they're studying, universities and colleges are very nervous about what that, what impacts it's going to have on their bottom line. And so, I mean, I don't know what the experience is for international students in Canada right now. Certainly for me, um, as an international student in uh, the U.S., and my fees aren't quite as differential as they are in Canada. It's not quite so bad. My fees are closer to domestic. But still, they're saying, um, look, even even if this, you know, if school opens up in the fall, we still may be able to provide you education distance on Zoom. <laughs> so So fear not and... Continue to expect that you will be paying tuition in the fall because they need the tuition in the fall. (laughs) It doesn't matter what's going on anywhere else. They're basically selling degrees at this point. 
Yes, absolutely. They are. They are. I've seen a lot of ads for Schulich in particular, the business school at York. That was is like, uh, we're there first. We're the first or the best online ready business degree or MBA or some bullshit. And it's just so <laughs> enraging that I'm seeing more about Schulich being an online school than what York University is doing and their students are doing to help out in the fight against COVID. I mean, the, the, there's a whole um, emotional side to this as well, which is that like, Oh, I don't know. Like, you also have students who have lost loved ones. You have students who've been sick. You have students who are probably scared out of their mind, and maybe they can't get home, and maybe they're stuck alone, or with roommates they barely know, or with roommates they hate. Oh, my God. If I was in quarantine with some of my university roommates, it would have been a fucking mm. nightmare. Yep. And the and, and 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 same for professors. Everything that you just said, same for professors. Same for, except I mean the difference with professors of course is that they probably have had more time to pick the roommates uh, more intelligently, right? Um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And and then you're expecting them to sit and stare at a computer for 4 hours a day and learn and be tested. I mean, it is such a joke. It is such a joke. And we started this episode off by talking about the number of people who have died. So we are well above the 1,000 number mark. By the time you're hearing this, we're probably closer to 2,000 people who've died in this country. That every one of those people represents a social network. And students and professors are in those networks. And to just ignore the fact that this crisis has a human toll and a human impact is just so university bureaucracy <laughs> where they're just like <laughs> yeah. a bunch of robotic shits who are like on the best of times. Oh, what do you mean you can't finish your assignment? What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, you have to beg to them to insist that so-and-so has died or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's exposing a lot of assumptions that I think, you know, a lot of us know have, have known for a long time. And universities should be ashamed. I mean, I haven't seen a single initiative from a university that I would say, oh, that seems great. In fact, my own university sent me a fucking email asking for money from me to fundraise for <laughs> students who were poor. And I'm like, okay, um, hey, Ryerson University, I just got laid off. So fuck you, actually. <laughs> wow. That's really stunning. Yeah. Um, did the did the letter at least say hope you're doing well or something like that, or did it just launch into it? Uh, it may have started off with like uh, in these trying times, blah blah blah. And it was the first alumni affairs email that I've responded to, where I literally wrote back, being like, "I just lost my job. Like, when are you doing our collection?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, none of this is too surprising, and I just hope that anybody who's like around the university, around the college systems, uh, to a lesser extent. Uh, elementary and high school education, although the system's a lot more centralized there. And so I think that you've got a lot more power to be able to push back on bad policy from government. But, you know, we have to stay involved to fight against the privatization of everything. And and this, this crisis lays that so unbelievably bare that uh, we should be gathering these stories and these anecdotes. And, and maybe there's a couple of students who have nothing else to do and can just start doing some research into how underfunding has impacted quality 
And we need to demand that uh, no more do we rely on more than 50% of our operating budgets to be covered by private funds, aka tuition fees. Uh, in fact, even 50% is a shame and it needs to get back up to where it was in the mid-19, early 1990s, which was closer to 80%. Now, as you were just saying that, I was just double checking to see if U of T also sent me an email. They did. They did. They sent me an email also <laughs> requesting some funds for the COVID-19 emergency student bursary fund. And the thing is, uh, this is like, I'm glad I saw that because it's like a perfect pivot to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is like, what the fuck is the government doing for students? Have they fully forgotten that students exist? <laughs> I just, I don't understand. Like, I, you know, after, I know that the conservatives um, often have a certain type of contempt uh, for the university student population, not necessarily the college student population, but certainly the university student population. But the liberals, the liberals always want to put out some sort of story that sounds marginally good for students, but in the details is, is shit. They haven't done that yet. <laughs> I've been waiting for it. I've been waiting for it to come to be able to tear it apart. <laughs> but Justin Trudeau keeps saying week after week, students, we have not forgotten about you. Don't worry. Details are coming. Yeah, students and the oil companies somehow got locked into that like lump of people who they weren't sure what to do with. Although last week the oil company bailout was announced, so yeah, and there was more announced for oil this morning. So I don't, I don't like where's oil before students. Okay, where are students in the order of people who need anything in this country? Clearly, at the very end. Like, what is going on? Yeah, part of it, of course, is that the federal government under the Liberals is just so unable to think outside of the Constitution that I think that they they just refuse to ask themselves this question. And so they rely on the, the measures that they they have access to easily because they're easy public policies. So, you know, there was a, a funding boost to the tri-granting councils, I think probably only to NSERC, maybe to CFI. So those are for the, the granting fund councils that fund science and research. Um, they uh, pushed off student loans, right? So you cannot pay your student loans for another, fuck, I don't know, six months or 10 months or whatever. Um, I think it was six months, yeah. I just mean, like, it'll just get extended until we're all back at normal anyway, right? It's just one of these kicking the can down the the road kind of policies, which is not going to cost them anything, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll cost them some interest money, but people, so many people default on their loans anyway that it's a program that's more and more expensive to to manage. Um, And they did, (laughs) this is my favorite, the liberals are also just so, like, stuck in the logic of of everybody's humanity is wrapped up in their job and everyone's a worker, but, like, not in, like, the way that Marx thinks everyone's a worker, (laughs) more like this is everybody's, like, exploitable. (laughs) And so the big student uh, thing that they gave out, I guess, was that they're subsidizing the Canada Summer Jobs Program at 100%. (laughs) <laughs> which is just like <laughs> it's the most pathetic thing I mean it sounds good I guess if you don't know what the summer jobs program is but I mean I do yeah. <laughs> you do <laughs> yeah so mm-hmm. th- this is a program where the federal government subsidizes summer jobs um, it's kind of a critical program for not-for-profits because you can get a bunch of summer students and the government would pay 80% of their salary. I mean, it's a huge, 75% of their salary. Something like that. It's a big yeah. chunk. It's not, it wasn't yeah, insignificant. 
Um, and, and you might remember it because it got into a bit of hot, hot water because there were like anti-choice groups hiring students to like harass people with the government money. Like, what the fuck? Um, the liberals did stop that. I think that's like the one thing that we can say. They actually did that. So that's cool. Mm, yay. Yeah. <laughs> I remember um, that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, a lot of people are hired through the Canada Summer Jobs Program, but not that many people. Um, the majority of students are certainly not. And um, it, again, is money that doesn't go to students. It goes to their employer to do what? Probably fuck all because no one can because work Because nothing's right now. happening <laughs> right now. <laughs> It is. It's just another one. That, like, oh, God, there's just so many ways that the liberals will announce spending tons of money on a thing that means that they're actually spending no money on the thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. because the, the way that that's funded is that, you know, you you have to send uh, the documents to the government for them to, to send everything back for exactly how much you need. So even if you get approved for a Canada, Canada summer student, you have to also prove to the government that those students were working the hours that you said that they were. And if everything's shut down and you don't have anything to prove that, then how much money is the government really spending on this program that they announced? Yeah, and, and you also have to be a student in full-time studies, so part-time students are out of it. There's an age limit. I think the age limit's 25. Um, you have to be a student who's a, you have to be a student on either end of the summer so you can't be in fourth year you can't be in high school uh, or you can't be returning to your studies after a break so there's a lot of stipulations and I know that like it causes a lot of headaches to people because you'll hire someone and they're awesome and you've done the interviews and then you find out that they're like an American <laughs> and you're like oh fuck you're not eligible because you also have to be a Canadian citizen so um yeah this is not a student bailout it's a bailout for a lot of not-for-profits in this country potentially <laughs> <laughs> potentially i mean yeah and even then like not really yeah and so you might be thinking maybe you're listening to us and you're a student or you're a professor and you're just like god damn they're right <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what can i do right now um to to be better <laughs> <laughs> this quarantine's really going well. I don't know well, any eh? other way of saying this. What's that? Quarantine's going really well right now, eh? Yeah, going great. <laughs> um, I think there's a few things. I mean, it, certainly if you have tenure and you are teaching a class, just one, give all of your students A's. <laughs> Seriously. What the fuck? Like, you got tenure. Who gives a shit? Jesus. You don't even have to wear pants to do your Zoom meetings with your students. Fuck. Yeah. And don't put the onus on the students who are having the most difficult time with this to, you know, go to student affairs and explain um, that people in their family died or people in their family were laid off, which led to this, that and the other. Don't put that on the student. They're already going through enough as it is um, in the best of times. That's really fucking dehumanizing thing to do and really difficult um but we are in the worst of times where everyone is going to be affected so just give everybody a can, can i just jump in there because i be, like yeah. my partner's a professor so i see this now from the from the eyes of someone who's teaching and i mean you have got to be one petty fuck to give a rat's ass about the students who are like i need more time and then being like why no you can't have more time <laughs> it's like zero skin off your nose to just be like yeah take more time yeah hand it in late yeah whatever i mean who cares like just show up to the final exam oh someone died okay yeah i believe you like anyway that's a that's a minor rant 
<laughs> no, I think you're totally right. Like I did, I saw on Twitter a few weeks ago, a professor who said like, I just want to make sure that my students don't think that this is a vacation. <laughs> just like, why, why would you, why would you orient yourself that way? A vacation like, to their house. I just... Where they're stuck. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, a vacation stuck in your house. Yeah. But also, you know, just everyone is going to have different effect, like um, uh, personal responses to what's happening. It's changing people's lives profoundly. And um, whatever, I don't know what kind of life you have to be leading to, to just have this type of suspicion that everybody who's touched by this is going to be thinking of vacation as their first um, thought or like, ooh, time off is their first well, thought. You must have a backyard um, at least. <laughs> yeah, a backyard and probably a really nice house. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, like, I, I, I think our orientation should be first and foremost, like, are you okay? And, if, you know, just basic human shit. Are you well? <laughs> and and if, if someone responds with, no, I'm not, and I can't get this in, give them an let a. them not get it in. Get it. Give here's, them an A. Here's, here's the worst case scenario is, and this is not even the worst case scenario. It's really not. <laughs> is I mean, the worst case scenario is that your students get sick, actually. Um, uh, or something happens in their in their lives, and and they are profoundly affected. Uh, but you know, the worst thing that can happen is, uh, in your mind, in the minds of people who are like, you know, this isn't a vacation, is that someone is potentially lying about how difficult their life is right now. Who f- who fucking cares? Who cares? I guarantee you, they are experiencing some level of difficulty. <laughs> That is unlike anything they've experienced before in their lives. <laughs> so who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just give them A's. That's one thing. Uh, two, if you are teaching a class and maybe it's good for you to continue teaching your class and you want to continue in- engaging with students and maybe it's good for some of the students in your class. Maybe some of the students in your class have told you how great it is that they have a sense of normalcy or something. Perhaps just think about figuring out whether or not there's a way to link what you are doing in the classroom to society um, as a whole. Like, is there a way that you can mobilize your students to assist with an activity that uh, a labor union or a community organization is putting on? Or maybe it's just that your students should be tracking information that's happening right now. Or maybe they could be um, uh, writing research uh, or thoughts or comments or something. Fucking poetry. I mean. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Free creative writing. Lots of stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, certainly I'm going to need somebody. I need two things studied right now. One is the ergonomic effects of all of us sitting at places that we're not meant to be sat at for so long. Because I'm feeling that. Number two. I'm on that, by the way. I'm actually on that for my one of my jobs. So stay tuned. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Can't wait to read it. And two, I want to know why it was. This is so unrelated. This is just very random. But I just want to know why it was that the NBA was the first major (laughs) institution. (laughs) I'm so on that. Why was it the NBA that was the first major institution to say, you know what? This is looking real shit. We need to shut down. I, you know, like we're talking about schools. It feels like it should have been schools or at least a public institution. 
but it wasn't. It was the NBA, and that's really weird to me. So if someone can research that, that would be great. Maybe someone in a in a physical health and kinesiology class. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those are some of the things that you can do. As students, I mean, I think that students should be demanding from institutions uh, tuition fee refunds. I mean, there are some schools in the United States where students have begun to take their institutions to court. Ah. Um, for saying that Zoom is the same as the education that they were receiving just a few months ago. Uh -uh, No, it ain't. Um, And also, I think students should be, uh, you know, if if the classroom is not creating these projects, if you have it in you, you should maybe create these projects and figure out what you can do. Make it an independent study. I don't know. See if you can convince your professor or your institutions to take this on because it just seems like such an obvious good news story. Even if you're the most cynical piece of shit administrator, like, doesn't it seem like it would be good? It's like, oh, we could put out a press release that says that we did all of these things. Yeah. Like, it just seems like a good thing to do. So I... You know, I I don't know if there's resistance to this type of thing. I can't imagine that it hasn't come up yet. Like, Nora and I can't be the first people to speak about this publicly, <laughs> you know? I have two um, suggestions as well. I've got two other ideas. Go on. Okay, one is an idea that is not my idea, but I'm actually able to participate in this. If you are a grad student and you study something interesting, try to have a reading circle with your friends. I mean, mm-hmm. you're surrounded by people probably outside of your life that aren't necessarily in school, and I'm excited to be in a in a little study group on Marx, being led by a PhD a PhD student who I know from Twitter. So that's super cool. She had the initiative to just be like, "Hey, do you guys want this?" And I think there's 15 of us, and we're going to be reading Marx and talking about Marx and feminism. So that's sweet. And you can do that with very cool anything, anything, right? You have specialized knowledge as a grad student. Think about how to keep your research skills a little bit sharp in the time that you have um, if you are not necessarily still doing your research, because of course there's a lot of grad students who will still be doing the research. The second thing that we absolutely need, and this has come up a lot in Canada, is race-based statistics of who is dying. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. we know already there's been four or five, I need to go back and cross-reference my own data, but there's been four or five people who have died from the healthcare system in Canada. And so there's someone from the Brampton, um, from the William Osler Center in Brampton. He was a cleaner who died. There was a doctor in the Montérégie in Quebec who, who died. Uh, there's been a personal care worker uh, who worked in um, Scarborough who died. Anyway, so we've got this list. They have all been racialized people, which is not mm. too surprising, but it's the kind of research that we need to, to, we need to find out. And so with mm-hmm. the deaths, I mean, that is, a, that is a huge task because there's, you know, there's 1,500 plus people who've died. And where do you get any information on people who've died in this country? That's called combing obituaries and doing mm-hmm. that kind of work and starting in small communities where you're able to cross-reference data and actually make sure you're, you, you've got identities of people. But we do need to have this information, and this is something that people could do together in an open-source way. Uh, or if you're a university researcher and you're asking and you need some help to, to gather some of this information, put the calls out online and see who's around to help out. Yeah, maybe. I was thinking also of just saying, let me just say this one other thing. Another idea, um, you know, like just like Nora, there's been other folks who've who've come together to do other projects. Like I've I've seen people who have been tracking the amount of or tracking 
uh, fake news coming out of COVID, like incorrect things that have been published by by uh, newspapers. And I've seen people who are tracking um, policing COVID-19 and what that looks like. And that's a big one that I think that, um, you know, needs uh, researchers behind it, dedicated researchers behind yes. it, um, uh, tracking that data and what it looks like. Um, those are two other ideas of things that need to to uh, to be taken place right now. Also, you know, the implications of having so many initiatives announced outside of um, like a parliamentary debate like that is also something interesting that, uh, you know, maybe political science students could be doing. There's just all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I I feel really great that Nora and I were able to come up with this list. <laughs> of things that people could do. Uh, I'm not being paid $350,000 a year as an administrator of a public institution to to come up with such things. You know, I was, I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. I know that some people are up there at the like $600,000 level, but you know, I would be, I feel like I would be like a middle of the road, just get done what needs to get done. Maybe, maybe excellently type of administrator. So 350. Yeah. You know, I'm a Trent. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not a laurier. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're a Trent and not a Queens. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not being paid to come up with these grand ideas, but I'm just like, come on, <laughs> those of you who are, why are you asleep at the wheel? Like what's going on? Like maybe, maybe there's a reason why someone hasn't come up with this already or why institutions aren't doing this. And we just don't understand this sector that we studied and worked in for about 15 years. Maybe we're just, you know, off and someone can explain it to me. But if not, like, fuck you guys, man. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? It's just so embarrassing. Embarrassing (laughs) uh, that colleges and universities have not responded in the way that they could um, to take care of the needs of their workers, take care of the needs of the students, and also to uh, to be active, like, members of their community in this society. It's really fucking embarrassing. 